We're in part two of our summer series uh, on the Psalms. Uh, Last week we looked at Psalm 17, uh, and this week we're looking at Psalm 103. Um, Now, I want to say something by way of a bit of a a slightly different entry point. Um, in, In 1565, a painter called Peter Bruegel, I think that's how you pronounced it, uh, painted a painting called The Hunters in the Snow. Now, the reason I know about The Hunters in the Snow is it happens to be one of my favorite all-time oil paintings ever. Uh, I did A-level art at school, and uh, he's, he's, a, he's known as an, an old master. There's people like um, Leonardo da Vinci, Caravaggio. Uh, there's other artists in this kind of group of people in the Renaissance, which is around about 1500 to 1650. Uh, and Peter Bruegel produced a lot of paintings. And now this picture called The Hunters in the Snow, you're going to have to imagine a little bit because it's, it's, as the name describes, it's set in a very wintry scene and we have the most wonderful summer's day today. Uh, So go with me on a little bit of a journey and perhaps as you imagine it, you might cool down a little bit. Um, So... He's painting this painting, and what he does in the picture is he's got, these, uh, he's got a, a team of hunters with dogs in the foreground, and they're descending this kind of snowy hill. And then as you look, as your eye follows the painting, you see these different uh, stretches of, uh, of icy water, of ponds, and, and, and a lake in the background. And then it goes off and off and off into the distance. And then you can make out, on the left-hand side of the painting, you can make out the sea, and it's frozen over. Uh, and then off to the right, you can see these crags and, and the, these cliffs that go up into the mountains. Uh, and if you look in the detail of the picture, what you find yourself seeing is you find all this stuff going on. There's somebody on the left-hand side who's lit a fire. There are some birds in the trees, and they've got like the trees are completely without leaves because it's the dead of winter. Uh, if you look down, there's a lady carrying a, 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 a sort of a thing of wood on her shoulder. There are people skating on the ice. Uh, in the background, and you can see these different figures and different houses, and it goes on and on and on into the distance. Um, the, the way he's painted it is very good. He's used some colors in it that are very evocative of the dead of winter. I don't know if you can kind of imagine winter right now, but you know, in the dead of winter, we have these kind of this sort of jade green color and this kind of grays, and, and woods turn purple because they've got no leaves and it's just all kind of masses of sticks and he's got the whole essence of the complete death you know a deadly grip of winter and ice absolutely to a T. Uh, when I first saw the picture I, I think I literally spent 20 minutes looking at it. I was like wow this is a stunning painting absolutely awesome it's the kind of thing you'd want on a Christmas card it just sums up winter so so well. Now there's a reason that I'm opening with that illustration because One of the reasons I like this painting so much is that it's colossal in scope. The scope of it is enormous. It goes all the way to the horizon. You could, if you were lucky enough ever to go to a gallery and sit on one of those, I don't know if you've ever been to an art gallery and you sat on the, you know, found a painting that you like and you sit on a bench and you just look at it. Honestly, if I had the, if I had the good fortune and the good luck to get along and actually see the hunters in the snow uh, for real, in real life, I probably would sit there and just spend an hour taking it all in. Now, why do I want to open with an illustration like that? Because I think the old masters had a sense of something colossal. They had, they had a sense of magnitude. They had a sense of, when I'm going to paint, I'm going to paint everything. Everything's going to be included in my picture. I'm not going to leave anything out. 
Uh, one of my uh, A-level art student colleagues, he had a go at just doing a tiny section from The Hunters in the Snow, and it took him like six weeks to do it. And when he finished, he was like, whoa, like Peter Bruegel, man, I really respect him. He really worked hard on this painting. Uh, now, he, if, uh, he died quite young in his late 40s, uh, sorry, mid-40s, something like that. But he produced most of his work in the final 10 years of his life. But he was a grafter. He would work. If you ever get a chance to see that painting, you will really admire the work and the diligence and the effort that's gone in. Now, as I was preparing to speak on Psalm 103, I found myself thinking, okay, why, why have I linked this painting with Psalm 103? The reason I've done so is because Psalm 103 is an old master in words about God. It's an old master which has a huge scope in it. Now, it's only 22 verses long, but what it says about the goodness of God and the reasons that we should praise God are absolutely fantastic. David has got a huge scope in mind. There's magnitude in this psalm. When you read this psalm and you get from beginning to end, it kind of blows your mind and you think, wow, God, you are so good. God, you have existed from eternity to eternity. God, you have, you, have, you have compassion upon us like a father has compassion on their children. You're slow to anger and rich in love. You, uh, you uphold justice and righteousness. Uh, there's all sorts of wonderful things uh, in this psalm. Um, there's compassion. There's redemption. There's healing. There's forgiveness. There's love. There are good things. Uh, there's a renewal of energy. There's justice, there's grace. He bears with our sin and our frailty. And it's as though David has painted in words an old master about the goodness of God. I'm actually a little disappointed that somehow we don't see old masters painted anymore. It would be really good to kind of resurrect that genre, I think, and see people having these massive canvases and doing a picture of everything But what we have in Psalm 103 is David giving us a picture of everything about the goodness of God. Everything you'd ever want to think about in 22 verses. And as you read it, your mind goes off in all sorts of directions, celebrating and praising God for his incredible goodness. I think it would be quite possible to sit and drink in the goodness of God in front of Psalm 103 for a long, long time if you wanted to do that. Now, what I suspect with many of our Psalms messages over these next few weeks is because the scope is large, because the content is, is big, we necessarily are going to have to drill down into one specific place or, or just a few highlights. And I'm going to have to do that this morning. I, I could preach on Psalm 103 for a long time, but you don't want that. It's a summer's day and uh, we've got our kids in. Uh, so I'm going to focus in and uh, pick out three things Three things that I think really speak to, really speak to me. It's one, of the, it's one of the first psalms that I really latched onto when I first became a new believer. And back in 2000, and I kind of discovered Psalm 103 in about November, December time. And I was like, whoa, God, this is awesome. And there's some great phrases in here. And I'm actually just going to go back to the three phrases that, I, that I really spoke to me all those years ago that continue to resonate with me. Does this ever happen with you with Psalms? You read a Psalm and it becomes like an old friend and you get into it again and it speaks to you again and then it says something new to you and you almost like have a relationship with it because God's voice is coming through it. So I'm going to do that this morning uh, with Psalm 103. So the first, they're, they're all two word phrases, they're all found in Psalm 103 and the first of these two word phrases is my soul. 
my soul. Uh, let's just see what it says there. Um, it says this at the beginning of Psalm 103, as Ure read for us, my soul, bless the Lord, or praise the Lord, as it says in the NIV. And all that is within me, bless or praise his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. And then if you jump to the very end, you have bless the Lord, all his works in all the places where he rules. My soul, bless the Lord. And it, and it opens and ends with these like, almost like bookends of instructions by David to his soul. Now that's a kind of a curious idea to me. The idea, you know, because we feel ourselves, we feel that we're integrated beings, don't we? We feel like we're all kind of together in one place. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I'm just a person. But what David, sensed, what David seems to be saying is he seems to be issuing instructions to a part of himself. He seems to be saying, my soul, do this. And I really like that. He's sort of realizing there's this really deep and spiritual part of himself that needs an instruction, that needs encouraging, that needs telling something in order for something to happen. Let me give you a little bit of an illustration uh, of what I mean by this. Uh, in uh, kind of years 9, 10, 11, 12 at school, I went to an all-boys school, and we had uh, cadets on a Friday. And I signed up for cadets. And what that meant was you could come in in your army gear, and uh, you'd sit in your lessons in your army gear. And then at the end of school, you'd go off and you'd do exercises, you'd do training, you'd do drill. Uh, I've, tried to, I've seen so many kind of boys doing this when they're supposed to be doing drill instead of marching properly, all that stuff. Um, and we do, we do like kind of exercises on paper and then we go out and we do fitness training and a lot of us ended up doing press-ups because the visiting uh, sergeant major was making us do press-ups and all that stuff. Um, so cadets was great fun and then every now and then on a Saturday you could go out on a, a weekend exercise with real soldiers in a real base and some of those experiences were pretty hair-raising I've got to say. And then, in, in the first year of the sixth form, so this is in year 12, you could go on something called arduous training. Now, arduous training was shrouded in mystery. Other boys that had been on it didn't say anything about it. And it kind of had like a kind of an aura to it. So I signed up for arduous training along with, a, you know, like about 15 other guys. And we went in this couple of minibuses down to Oakhampton Military Base in uh, Devon. Uh, and uh, we, we got put into, into barracks, and uh, we were told that we were going to be starting off on our arduous training at 7 a.m. the next morning. At 6 a.m. the next morning, I heard what can be best described as a man screaming. And I'll try and do it, so f bear with me if this distorts on the live stream. But it was, FALLEN! Like that. And then, so boys basically lifted their heads out from their blankets and said, like, did you hear somebody shouting? And somebody said, yeah, uh, I think it was fall in. And that was our, that was our key word. And when, when the sergeant major shouts fall in, you have to be out on that, in that courtyard, lined up, ready to rock in all your gear. And so there was all this scrambling to get everything ready. And it was accompanied by a couple of soldiers who came running into our, bar into our barrack area. You could hear the boots coming down the corridor. The door got kicked open. There's rifle butts against the lockers. And it was mayhem. And we were trying to get ready really, really quickly. But the, the, up, the upshot of it was we heard this command and we got out there and we did it. We were there in five minutes flat. And we're like, ready to go. And I think there was one lad who was still struggling. He had to do 50 press-ups. You know, it was that kind of thing. <laughs> Sometimes we hear a command and we just need to do it. And what David does in this psalm is he says, um, he says at the beginning of Psalm 103, let me just give it to you again. He says, um, my soul 
And here's the instruction. My soul, bless the Lord or praise the Lord. He's issuing an instruction to a part of himself. And that part of himself is going, yes, I'm going to jump in on that and I'm going to do it right now. He does it straight away. Now, what's quite nice about this is it's a positive thing. It's an invitation. It's an encouragement. It's very definite, but it's about doing something really, really positive. Have you ever been in those situations where you tell yourself off? You give your, a part of yourself an instruction, but it's not terribly positive. Uh, you are not having that piece of cake, Nick Whittam. Walk away from the table or whatever it might be. It's like a rebuke to yourself. And so often we do a rebuke to ourselves. But what David does at the beginning of Psalm 103 is he issues an, like a very firm invitation to his soul to do something wonderful, which is praise God. And, and that I find really, really encouraging. Uh, we, we need to tell ourselves to fall in sometimes. We need to give our soul a bit of an instruction and an invitation to praise God. And I, wanna, I just want to ask us about something that we do during our day. I wanna, in each of these points, I'm going to give you a how, a something to do. Um, I once heard a phrase uh, from a lady, a, a preacher in the States, well-known preacher in the States called Joyce Meyer. And she said that she does this thing called a praise pause. She does a praise pause. Now what that means is that during her day, she will intentionally pause for a moment... And she'll praise God. She'll actually stop what she's doing and she'll say, praise you, God. You're great. I love you, Lord, because you are good. And, it, you know, it, she'll do different things with that. She might sing a song. She might say some words to God. She might say a prayer. But she calls it a praise pause. Um, and I want us to adopt that as a church. I would love us to adopt a sense of when we hear that, when we, for us, sorry, to issue an instruction to our soul that says, let's have a praise pause here. Let's praise God for a moment. My soul, I want you to praise God. Because our souls are actually subject to our will and our, and our decisions, and they can be taken to a place. Uh, we can go somewhere as a result of our decisions, and our soul will follow, and then our soul will be praising the Lord. Let's have praise pauses in our day. Now, I'm preaching this to me because I'm not great at doing praise pauses during the day. I talk to God a lot. I do. I, I, I'm always talking to God in my heart, in my mind, sometimes in the car. I'm saying stuff to him, and I'm good at thanking God for stuff, but I want to go on a bit of a journey where I'm intentionally pausing and praising the Lord. Uh, let's do a praise pause. Um, we have a record number. Well, it's a record during my time here at BCC. Um, it may have been more before I arrived here in 2015, but uh, we've got 37 of our youth at Limitless Festival. 37. That's awesome, isn't it? So, so good. Really pleased. Now, one of them was showing me an app called Be Real. And the idea behind Be Real is it's like a counter to the, you know, you know how on social media we tend to present ourselves in our best light? Well, Be Real is like a, no, just present yourself as you are, which has got some dangers to it, I think, but I think you don't want to go too far with that. Um, but I think it's like, whatever moment you've got in your day, just present it. And one of, one of them came up to me and said, hey, I've got a Be Real reminder on here. Uh, so should we, just, we just did a quick selfie together. But there's, so there's an app where you're being encouraged to sort of jump into a real moment. Can I encourage us to have random moments in the day where we are reminded to praise the Lord? Praise him. Give him glory. He is great. Uh, and he is wonderful. Second phrase. So the first one, I'm just giving you an encouragement to take a praise pause. The second one is this little two-letter two um, phrase, forget not. 
forget not. David says this in verse 2, praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits. And I think this is a big one. I think some of us, maybe all of us, are prone to forgetting some of the great things that God can, can do for us and has done for us. And what I think happens in a long-term relationship with a person is some of the great things about them kind of travel subconscious. You know, at the beginning of the relationship with God, we're all effervescent, we're all excited, we're all like, wow, God, you're incredible. Uh, you know, he's doing miracles, it's just, just awesome. And then something happens over the years where we might fall into a little bit of a comfortable space with God. We're not, you know, we're not being irreverent, but we've become familiar. And then some of his goodness and his benefits have gone subconscious. And what David is saying in forget not is do not let that happen. Don't let it go subconscious. Continue to remind yourself of the greatness and the goodness of God. And then he lists out this wonderful, wonderful list. I'll get into that in just a minute and I'll I'll take you through the list he brings because it's great. Um, let me give you an illustration of how not to forget something or how I forgot something and then shouldn't have done. Uh, as a teenager, I got a job in the local village along from me um, in a bakery called Weeks the Bakers. Now, Weeks the Bakers still exists, actually. I looked it up on Google when I was uh, researching this message, and it looks exactly the same as it did like in the late 80s. I was quite shocked. So they've done nothing to it at all. It still seems to be open, so they're obviously on a, on a winning formula. Uh, so I got this job as a teenager just before I went off to university. And I liked Weeks the Bakers because they had the, the most wonderful smell of fresh bread in there. You'd open the door, the bell would ring, and this, this warm bread, this fresh bread smell just cooked would hit you. And it would be like, oh, that is just amazing. And then it had a tinge of fresh coffee as well because they served fresh coffee from behind the counter. And it was just amazing to go in there. So I was pretty pleased to get a job there. And I worked in, with the bakers behind in the ovens and so on and so on. So I was working there for about six weeks. And uh, what happened was my appreciation for the smell of fresh bread and coffee kind of, if you drew a graph, it was kind of right up here at the beginning. And it basically gradually went down. Downhill, downhill, until the point where I didn't register it anymore. And it was, it was more about the work and the people and the events and what was going on in the street and all that sort of stuff. And then one day, uh, in, in late September, just like I was about to go to university, it's, in late September, a couple came in, <coughs> and I was actually serving behind the counter. And she, she opened the door, the bell went, and she said, Ooh, Roger, the smell of bread, like this. And then he said, um, Oh, yeah, they, they serve coffee here as well. And suddenly, I was, re- I was reminded, oh yeah, there's some things about this place that I love. There's some stuff that's gone subconscious. And what I want us to remember, what, what I think David is trying to do, and he's trying to get us to remember that there's some fantastic things from God that God gives for us. Really, really great things. He, he lists them out from uh, verses 3 to 5 there. He says, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He kind of reels off some great things. They're just great things. If you read those things and drink them into your spirit, they are great. They're so, so encouraging. David is saying, don't forget, God forgives you. Don't forget, God heals you. Don't forget, God takes your broken, old, self-centered life from that grotty place where it used to struggle And he's paid the price through Jesus on the cross to get you out of there. Don't forget that God crowns you with love and compassion. Don't forget God meets your desires with good things. Don't forget that God can renew your vitality and make you soar in life like an eagle. Don't forget, people. Don't forget, he keeps on saying. It's great. 
So how? What's the how with this one? How can we get better at not letting ourselves forget God's goodness? What, is a great, what, what, would, we, what would be a great way uh, of making sure that, the, that what's good about God does not go subconscious? How do we do that? Well, my top tip for us uh, to, to do this or to achieve this is to practice gratitude and thankfulness. That's my top tip. There may be other things. You might suggest some other things to me over coffee afterwards in the cafe. But I, I think for me, gratitude and thankfulness are absolutely where it's at in terms of remembering the goodness of God. In terms of keeping mindful of his goodness and, and having that in our minds. Yeah, you know, I keep a prayer journal and I write my prayers out longhand. And you might think, well, that's a bit kind of strange. It's just something that really works for me. There's something of the the process of sitting quietly with God, writing things out. He often guides me to write things as I pray for people that I know are not from me. I like to send those to, uh, prayers to people from time to time. Um, but sometimes I will devote a whole... Pa- I get one of those um, black and red A4 books, you know, with a hardback cover. They'd be expensive, actually, but I just thought, no, I'm doing that because this is a special thing and I'm investing in this. So I've got a whole lot of these books that are built up over the years and I write in them. Um, sometimes I will do... A long list of just thank you, God, in a prayer journal entry. I won't ask him for stuff. Who gets in there with the prayer closet with God and it's like straight into asking for stuff? Yeah, I think we all do it, don't we? But once in a while, it's really good to just kind of go, okay, I'm going to just say thank you to you, God, for all the things that you have done. Thank you, God, for Chloe. Thank you, God, for my boys. Thank you, God, for this fantastic opportunity at BCC. Thank you, God, that you've helped us with our home. Thank you, God, for my car. Thank you, God, for all the people you've put in my life. Thank you, God, for the wisdom of the church. Thank you for the incredible inspiration you've put in Scripture that's just awesome. Thank you for the view from my back window. Thank you, God, for everything that you have put in my life. It's such a great thing to do. Um, and, and, and so I would say that what, what, what David does here in Psalm 103 is pretty much he goes through a list of thank yous. He kind of is reminding us of all the great things about God. So if you're ever kind of wanting to know how to practice this, uh, this thing, uh, the title Forget Not, if you like this, this second point here, practice, and we've heard it before, this is a cliche almost, but practice an attitude of gratitude. It will help you so, so much. So number one, Praise pause. Number two, an attitude of gratitude. And then the last two-word phrase that I'd like to explore this morning um, is this phrase here, good things. Let me just read this out to you. Um, I'll take you from from the beginning, actually. It says, my soul bless the Lord and all that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit, crowns you uh, from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Good things. I actually think that 90% of the world's issues would go away if we just accepted that what God said is good for us is actually good, rather than us kind of trying to fight him on that and say, no, we think what we think is good. Uh, I really do. Uh, we, so much of our difficulties in life, in life flow from that God, say, God says one thing, and, but we think another from our flesh, from, the, from, from our history, or whatever. Now, it's a, a really old problem. If you just cast your mind back, this problem takes us right back to the deception uh, by Satan in the Garden of Eden. You know, before Eve has, Eve has even been created, God tells Adam about a tree that is not good for him to touch or eat from. 
He says, you've got all this permission around you, but there's this one tree in the center of the Garden of Eden that you, you, it is not good. Do not touch that. And in their humanness, Adam and Eve, and, and, and as a result of the deception by the, by the snake, they end up touching it and eating it. What God says about that before that happens is quite interesting. It says it in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. He, God says this, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In other words, mortality gets introduced if you mess with this, people. Don't do that. Our relationship will get disconnected if you mess with this tree. Don't do that. It's not good for you to touch that. And then Satan comes along and he does a great marketing job on how God might be wrong. And Adam and Eve, (laughs) Adam and Eve suddenly realize that Satan was wrong and God was right. And the reality is we all struggle to tell the difference between what is genuinely good and that will satisfy our desires. God's heart is that he will satisfy our desires, legitimate desires, with good things. And we have this struggle about, well, what are the things that we should be uh, letting into our lives? How can we tell that they're from God? Uh, How can we do that? What I think is really uh, helpful here is when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Um, There are some temptations that he went through, and they're quite instructive for helping us determine what's good or not. So Satan first goes, he's very, very hungry. He's been fasting a long time. And then Satan goes to him and says, um, right, Jesus, first of all, I want you to tell these stones to become bread. Now that's a legitimate desire right there because our bodies grow hungry, don't they? But then Jesus says, no, I'm fasting and I'm seeking to ensure that my soul is fed more than my flesh right now. So get away from me, Satan. What he's basically saying is, Yes, that's a legitimate thing you're trying to tell me about meeting the desires that I have, but the timing is totally off, so get away from me. Then Satan comes back at him again, and he says, the test this time is, is God really going to rescue you, Jesus? Because he invites him to throw himself off the top of the temple, doesn't he? And it's a legitimate desire for every single person in this room, for Jesus himself, for everyone in the world, to know that God can save. That's legitimate. We want want to be sure about that, don't we? But then Jesus counters it and he says, no, I'm already secure in my relationship with my father, thank you. You don't need to touch that. And then thirdly, the devil comes and says, worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And the legitimate desire there that he's trying to appeal to Jesus with is the influence of people. But then Jesus says, no, I'll achieve my influence with people the way that God is asking me to. I'm going to do it God's way, not your way, Satan. So how do we do this? How do we determine that things are good for us? Because that's such a big question. It's so hard. And I don't think I can unpack all of it now. Let me give you um, a, a little bit of a clue. I think David gives us a great clue. He says the word satisfies. Satisfies is important because when God gives us a good thing, it genuinely satisfies us. When it's something that we've manufactured or brought in or that the enemy's trying to push on us or it's too early or the timing's off or it comes from a bad source, I think we can have the thing, the the so-called good thing, but it ends up not quite satisfying us in quite the way that it should have done. Then maybe there are some regrets with it. Maybe there are unforeseen traps. Maybe there's a price to pay that we didn't realize was there. Let me tell you a little story uh, about this, just as an illustration of what I mean. 
At the beginning of C.S. Lewis's children's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are four children, and it's a very well-known story. The, the youngest of the four children, Lucy, goes through the back of the wardrobe, and she discovers this other world, Narnia. That's also in winter as well. And she walks through all these snowy things, and she meets a fawn, and, it's, and she has this incredible adventure. And she comes back, and she tries to tell her other brothers and sisters about it, but they don't really believe her. Edmund is, her, is one of her brothers, and he's particularly unpleasant about it. But then he goes into the wardrobe to see whether she's saying the truth, and he finds that he can get in there too. And he goes on a bit of a journey, and he's exploring things. And suddenly, along comes the white witch on her sleigh. And uh, the white witch is incredibly evil. She's been holding Narnia in her grip for years. And she, the sleigh is driven by this nasty little dwarf. And she pauses a moment, and they have a conversation. And one of the things that happens is Edmund says, um, I'm cold and I'm hungry. Legitimate desires. He, he voices his needs. And so the witch says, well, why don't you come up and sit on the sleigh with me? And uh, so he sits next to her, and he, she does a couple of spells, and she clicks her fingers, and a, and a kind of goblet of hot chocolate appears, and he drinks it down, and it's the best hot chocolate he's ever had. And then he says he's hungry, and then she clicks her fingers again, and then this box of Turkish delight appears. And it's the most wonderful Turkish delight you've ever had. Now, some desires have been met there with possibly good things, but what happens is, as, the, as these gifts are given over, the dwarf that's driving the sleigh gives them over with what C.S. Lewis says is a not very nice smile. And there's the clue that these gifts are not very nice. They're going to have an edge to them. And sure enough, the Turkish delight has an addictive quality in Edmund, and it's all he can think about for the next six chapters of the book. And when he goes and visits the witch again, uh, she refuses point blank to give him any of the Turkish delight, and he finds that it's a trap. It's a great parable of what's a good thing versus what's not a good thing. And actually, Edmund typifies the, 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 the journey that some, some of those of us, perhaps in the room, who've gone on that journey fighting addiction, have to fight. You know, a, a, an addiction is, could probably be described as a person's search for the original high that they never find again. And they spend the rest of their lives trying to find it. And Edmund is in that same space because he's got hooked into something that looks good, but actually isn't good. So let me just give you some pointers. I'm just going to ask the worship team just to come back. And I'm going to just give us some pointers on how we can tell a good thing. The first thing is that it actually satisfies us when we get it. There's no edge to it. There's no hidden trap. There's no kind of bad feeling with it. There's no payload with it. It just satisfies us and it fills us up. It doesn't dominate or control us. Good things from God are there to serve you and as a gift from him to you, they will not dominate you in your life. If you have something that's in your life that's dominating you and you're trying to work out is that from God or not, it probably isn't if it's got control over you because God never does that to us. He wants us to be free. That's another classic sign. And one of the other things I think that's a real classic sign of a good thing is it can quite often come with a period of waiting beforehand. And that's often where we get into difficulties because we, we feel like we need to short-circuit God's process. And we go, well, God, actually, I need this now, not in three years' time. And then we get into all sorts of difficulties with that. Good things. God wants to give us good things. And David he includes it in his list of the great things that are great about God. He really does. Let me just take you very quickly through. Let's all stand and we're going to sing uh, to the Lord. We're going to praise him actually. My soul. We can give instructions to our soul. 
and our soul will follow. Let's have a praise pause in our days. Forget not. Don't forget all the great things that God is and don't let them all slide subconscious. They're great. He's great. And maybe you might want to kind of be thankful from, from time to time and give, give God thanks for all the different things that are going on uh, for you that he's done for you. And then lastly, good things. God wants to give you good things that will satisfy you properly. That's what, just three highlights from such an awesome psalm that I view as like a, an old master in words. I really do. It's just a legendary psalm. And I hope it blesses you today. Let's sing for a bit and then we'll, we'll respond briefly. Thank you so much, team. Thank you.